Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, Week 40. We are making such great progress. This week, we are reading in the Daily Bible what are the dates of October 1 through 7, or pages of 1266 through 1296. Now, we are really beginning now our wrap-up to the end of the Old Testament. That's how far we've come, so I really want to congratulate you on that. And this week, we are going to deal with two truly amazing parts of Scripture. So I'm so excited uh, to get to talk about this today. But first, let's review. So last week, we had our prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesying to the people, keeping them encouraged, and keeping them focused for the rebuilding of the temple. And um, so this week now, I want to look back at the prophet Zechariah, starting with uh, chapters 9 through the end of the book, 14. So the first part of the book, we dealt with more these eight visions that he had and uh, dealing with sort of the here and the now and, and encouraging the people and bringing them assurance. Now here for this week, chapters 9 through 14, he has some futuristic prophecies that are really quite astounding, I have to say. And of course, there was some futuristic also in the first part of the book. And here in this last part, there um, is a little bit of the here and now. So I don't want to say it's it's totally um, but moving forward here, we, we enter, enter into some really amazing prophetic sections of, of the Bible. And um, I turn to these uh, many, many times and in conversations with people because I, I believe these chapters just describe so perfectly um, events that are beginning to happen now and will be happening in the near future. So starting with chapter 9, I'm going to start with verse 9 through 13, talking about the coming of Zion's king. And it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Wow, this is amazing. So rejoice, you know, your king comes righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey. This is the part about the coming king and the Messiah that everyone tended to stumble over because either they were looking for that victorious king or the, and the, the lowly, I have to say that the lowly then just passed right by them. And of course, uh, we know that in the New Testament, Jesus did ride 
that donkey into Jerusalem, and many saw it as a fulfillment of this scripture right here. And so he says that, you know, I, God here, will take away the instruments of war because he's going to bring peace. He's going to proclaim peace to the nations. And listen to this. His rule is going to extend not from the river to the sea, which is the land of Israel, the Jordan River to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. No, no, no. His rule is going to extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Clearly, this passage of Scripture is describing the coming Messiah. Then in uh, verse 14, that the Lord will appear. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. Um, going on down then here to verse 16, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock, and they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. I love that verse. But then in Zechariah 10, and it talks about how the Lord is going to, uh, how the Lord is upset with the shepherds who have mistreated his people, and he is going to care. He's going to come as a shepherd for his people. So here in chapter 10, verse 3, my anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. And from Judah will come the cornerstone. And we know who that cornerstone is who comes. Then going down to uh, verse 11, it gives a picture of the shepherds and the flocks, and, and he's denouncing the worthless shepherds. And then starting here, actually in verse 12, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Whoa, what an amazing scripture. Of course, those of us that know the story of Jesus and how that Judas betrayed him for a price of 30 shekels of silver, and then um, Judas threw the silver back at the priest and the Sanhedrin. And so they took it and they bought the potter's field with it. And here in this scripture in Zechariah, written hundreds of years earlier, he's, he's describing here how that these unrighteous shepherds set a price on his head of 30 shekels. And the Lord said, throw it to the potter, this handsome price that they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. So in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 9, it tells the story of Judas. And it says here, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse 
and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. So both Jeremiah and Zechariah had seen this day when 30 pieces of silver would be paid for the life of the Messiah. Wow, it's it's really astounding. And then moving ahead in Zechariah to Zechariah 12. And this talks about a day where the nations are going to come up against Jerusalem. And it says, on that day, this is Zechariah 12, 9. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And then continuing on an amazing section of scripture here. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, The weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. This is describing a day where the Lord's going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. This is all a part of the same scripture where the Lord comes to save his people, to defend them against the nations. And it says here that he's going to pour out his spirit upon him and they're going to look upon him, the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And then in in chapter 13, Zechariah goes on and he sees a day of a great cleansing the same day that I believe Ezekiel saw and the same day that Jeremiah saw. It's a day of cleansing of the people. Let's read about it here. So 13 verse 1 says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And then in chapter 14, Zechariah goes on, A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. 
On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. And you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I'm just going to stop here and say, you know, when Zechariah was prophesying this, I just want you to picture this. Jerusalem is still rubble. They've just finished rebuilding the temple, and it's nothing compared to the previous temple. Jerusalem is still just rubble. Um, We're going to read next week about how that Nehemiah has to come help try to build up the city. And yet Zechariah is seeing this amazing day when the nations are going to come against Jerusalem. Why would they come against a city that's already been destroyed? This little bitty city. Because he was looking into the future day when the city is going to take the center stage of world attention. And for sure, we're living in that day. For 2,000 years, Jerusalem has been nothing. But now, in the last 75 years, The Jewish people are back in Jerusalem. They're back in their land. Since 1967, Jerusalem is being under Israeli sovereignty. And once it is now the center of world attention, and you can see how that nations actually would come up against Jerusalem. Why? Because the nations are always led by jealousy, by evil intent, and by hatred. And so, Yes, it could very well happen. And here it describes, but that the Lord is going to come. And on that day, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. We've been talking about this Mount of Olives in the last few weeks. And this is the, the angels when they saw Jesus ascend from the Mount of Olives. They said he will return just as he ascended. And he will return according here to Zechariah, to the Mount of Olives. And when his feet stand on that mountain, there's going to be an earthquake like in the days of Uzziah. Well, you know, it's just been in the news this year in 2021 that they have found the archaeological evidence of the earthquake in the days of Uzziah in Jerusalem. They'd already found evidence of it in other parts of Israel, but they hadn't found evidence in Jerusalem itself. They just found it this year. So there is going to be this mighty earthquake, and the mountain's going to split. So let's continue our reading. Verse 6, On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty or darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name.
Now, this is astounding because the living waters, Jesus stood in the temple and he proclaimed that anyone who is thirsty come to me because, and you will have living waters. And he is the source of living waters. And when he comes and establishes his kingdom on earth, it will be from there in Jerusalem. And it will go from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And his name, his the only name, will be over the earth. And then in, chap- in verse 16, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So we are already celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles year after year there in Jerusalem, not in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, but in preparation for it. And we're preparing the nations for this day when they will come up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It will be a magnificent day. And the prophet Zechariah saw it in detail like none of the other prophets saw it. But in our days, as we see events on the earth lining up, I can see it lining up just exactly as Zechariah saw it. So enjoy the reading of Zechariah 9 through 14. Let it soak in. It is so very exciting. Now, I promised you that we're going to read a second part of the scriptures that's equally as exciting, and that is the book of Esther. You know, the book, we all love the story of a queen, right? Uh, But we love this story of Queen Esther. Esther was actually a Jewish orphan. Her, her Jewish name was Hadassah, and she had been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And we know the story um, how that uh, the king becomes very unhappy with Queen Vashti. So he wants to have a new queen. And, um, and so Mordecai gets Hadassah. Uh, entered into the contest, and she goes through all the preparations, and then she has the favor of the king, and she becomes Queen Esther. We know the story. Well, then it goes on, and the king's consort, Haman, um, who was full of himself and expected everyone to bow down to him and give honor, and the Jewish people couldn't bow down to man. They're forbidden to do that. And so he came to hate the Jewish people, and, um, and he decided to get rid of them. That's how much he hated them. And so, you know, I just, I see the story of Esther as the beginning of the story of anti-Semitism that has continued on from generation to generation. And I know that we've had, we've had many stories already of kingdoms that came and they overtook the Jews and they destroyed it all, but but they weren't really stories of anti-Semitism. They and they were stories of the ancient kingdoms, and uh, that you had to worship the gods of that kingdom, and so the 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 Jews couldn't uh, bow down and worship these gods, or they weren't supposed to, and. Um, And I don't see that as the beginning of anti-Semitism the way I see it here in the story of Haman. 
Haman came to hate the Jews because they didn't bow down to him and give him the kind of honor uh, that he was looking for. And so he comes up with this plot uh, to have the Jews of the Persian Empire um, killed. And he gets the king to pass this decree. And once the king has made a decree, it's done. There's nothing you can do. You cannot rescind a decree that has gone out from the king. So um, Hadassah has to go before the king asking uh, for this to be rectified. And so the only thing that the king can do in the end is to do another decree that says the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And that's how they were saved, was through self-defense. That's a very interesting twist to the story, I think. Now, a couple of things I want to point out to you is, number one, that Haman was a descendant of um, the Amalekites. It says he was an Agagite. And if you remember the story back in the wilderness when the Jews were delivered from Egypt, the very first people to attack them in the desert were the Amalekites. And so the Lord decreed, declared, the Lord declared that uh, he was going to wipe out the Amalekites. He was going to bring them to an end. But it said there was an interesting verse there that the Lord would um, fight the Amalekites from generation to generation. And that's in Exodus 17. Um, Let me read to you verses 15 and 16. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so here we have Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites, come up with this decree to kill the Jews of the Persian Empire. Now, the other thing I want you to know is that uh, right there in Esther uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 1, it says that at the time of uh, this king, that the Persian Empire stretched all the way from India in the east to Ethiopia in the west. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. This is how big the Persian Empire was. It was all the way from India, which included Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, all of the Middle East, of course, today, what is Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, into Egypt, Libya, up to Ethiopia. It took in Turkey up in the north, crossed the sea into Um, what is Europe today. That's how big the Persian Empire was. So you think for me for a minute, if they had have succeeded in killing all the Jews of the Persian Empire, that's all the Jews. This was a threat, an existential threat to the Jewish people forever. That's why God intervened. That's why what Queen Esther did was so important. God was saving his people as he had promised to do, but the whole plan of God was on the line here. 
If Haman had succeeded in wiping out the Jewish people, that was it. God's plan was over. He had chosen this people. He had made promises and declarations of how he was going to use this people and the descendants of King David. That would have been all over. 500 years later, there would have been no Jewish people back in the land. There would have been no Jewish Joseph and Mary to give birth uh, to Jesus and to raise Jesus. There would have been no temple to take Jesus to for his circumcision or when he was 12 years old. None of that would have been there. It would have been all over. This is why the book of Esther is so important. And this is why the Jewish people celebrate the story of Esther every year. And the celebration is called Purim. Maybe we should all be celebrating Purim along with them, don't you think? Okay, this week we're also reading from the prophet of Malachi. And Malachi is speaking to Israel as external oppositions to the building of the temple come and go. Um, But there is moral and religious decline and discouragement. And uh, they're kind of looking for, well, where are the fulfillment of these prophecies that, that have been spoken over us? What about these prophecies of Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or Zechariah? I mean, the people are getting discouraged. It's hard work rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. It's really hard work. And so Malachi starts with God's love for his people. And then he speaks about the sins of the priest and the people. And, and, but then he ends the book with encouragement about the coming messenger who's going to come and prepare the way. And so in um, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Malachi ends with this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that's how the book ends. And what the prophet Malachi is saying here is that Elijah will come, the spirit of Elijah will come uh, to bring restoration. It's all about relationship. And as the people's relationship is restored to the Lord, it's restored within their families, within their society, as they live in obedience with the Lord. And if the Lord comes and he doesn't find obedience, then it says here that there would be destruction. So um, Malachi is giving his people instruction um, and correction, but at the same time with a ray of hope. Well, now that we have gone through uh, the inspiring visions of Zechariah and we've heard the wonderful story of the rescue of the Jewish people in the book of Esther, let's return to our storyline before we close out today. So we've previously been reading about the uh, first return of the exiles under Zerubbabel. We read about that in uh, Ezra 1 through 6 and Uh, Those exiles actually completed the rebuilding of the temple. Um, Then roughly 60 years after the temple was completed is when we have the story that begins in Ezra 7, 
through the end of the book, and that is the return of a second group of exiles led by Ezra. Now, the temple was up and running, and the high priest, Joshua, was Ezra's uh, cousin. And Ezra had a love for the law and the word of God, and he wanted to bring spiritual revival to the people. He wanted to uh, bring back obedience to the law. And that's really uh, what his emphasis was. And he gets back to the land. He brings about 40,000 exiles with him. And what does he find? Intermarriage. They have all been intermarrying with pagan women from the nations and peoples surrounding the area. And Ezra is so upset because he knows it was intermarriage that brought sin into the camp to begin with and really that caused its downfall, beginning with Solomon and all the way through their history. And he was so distraught over this. So one of the men in the camp said, well, let's force them to divorce. And so they gather all the men, and they have a registry of them, and these men uh, willfully leave their wives and their children. Now, we may be appalled by this story, um, and it's interesting that in the book of Malachi, which is probably written by Ezra, um, it's, that's the rabbinic tradition is, it was Ezra that wrote Malachi, uh, in there, God says he hates divorce, and uh, but he's talking about divorce caused by unfaithfulness in Malachi. So I think that the prophet Ezra wanted or needed, saw the need to clarify here that divorce is not good, um, it's not acceptable, uh, but in this case, it was for the survival of the Jewish people in the land. So interesting little story there. And um, sorry to end our week together on that note, but that ends our story for this week. And uh, so enjoy the reading of uh, Zechariah and Esther uh, this week. I'll see you back here next week. And until then, God bless. Hey, I invite you to join me on an 11-week trip through the pages of the New Testament. Follow along with me as we hear the story of Jesus, the apostles, their writings, and that final great vision of John of the return of Jesus. You will understand the story of the New Testament and that it's still going on today and you have a part in it. So sign up today at theoutofzionshow.com. Request your New Testament reading guide, and I can't wait to get started. I'll see you then. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.